It's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, we will continue now in 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 18 this morning. And John, in like manner as we've seen through the rest of this epistle, starts verse 18 with little children. Um, if you do remember back, uh, this is a tender kind of a greeting um, and in a continuation of what he's already been telling them, he says, little children, it is the last hour. Um, it is interesting that John thought it was the last hour, way back in about A.D. 70, uh, when he would be writing this. And he's not wrong. Um, it is the last hour, and even still I'm convinced that it is the last hour. In fact... Um, at Pentecost, we have entered into what is the last ages, um, the last age, the last days. And Paul instructs the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this church age that we're living in right now is the preceding age to the return of Christ. Um, and so even as uh, John was saying it is the last hour, I believe it still is the last hour. And it will be the last hour until Christ returns. So John says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. So Jesus in Matthew 24 when questioned about signs of his second coming, he tells his disciples that there will be false Christs in the world right before he comes again. And we have seen these false Christs all throughout this age. And it's not difficult to just pull up a search on the internet and type like people who claim to be Christ. And it literally will fill hundreds of thousands of results. And um, John is even using this as a sort of proof that we are living in the last times, um, or they were living in the last times uh, when he was writing this. But this is his proof that Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have come. Now, you see he uses Antichrist in the singular, and that is in reference to a single man or somewhat of a man. He will present himself as a man um, that will be coming to deceive. And we are going to be looking at that a little bit in a second. But um, that Antichrists, the plural Antichrist, is speaking more of the spirit that is behind this Antichrist. Um, so John is actually going to go into more detail about discerning between the spirit of God and the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, I believe it's in chapter 4, uh, but it's later on in his epistle here. And so we see the spirit of Antichrist working today. And it's evident in teachings like from the New Age philosophy of like Christ is within each of us. Like we literally are all 
Christ. And this is completely contrary to what is taught in the Bible. Um, Jesus never taught that. He actually taught very the opposite of that. Um, let me see if I can find this. In Isaiah 31.3, um, that serves as a great proof verse for the clear distinction between man and God. You see, these New Age teachers will tell you that um, the universe itself is God. And it's, it's funny to look back at the pantheists of like ancient days. These polytheists, the pantheism is relating God to nature and saying that nature is effectively God. And these New Age teachers are recycling this. And whether they know it or not, they're perpetuating, per, perpetuating that lie that was from the beginning. So it's all just a cycle. You just see it repeated over and over and repackaged to the current times. But in this lie, uh, these people will say that the universe is God. And if the universe is God, and we are a part of the universe, then we are ourselves God. But in Isaiah 31.3, it says, Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And that says it very plainly. And, of course, you can go all through Jesus' teachings in the New Testament and see that idea reiterated. Verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, then they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us. So, John's getting a little wordy here, but um, it can be boiled down basically to saying that since they showed that they were not uh, willing to continue with us, uh, that was basically proof that they never were with us in the first place. And he's not saying that the Christians, which he would say us, referring to all the believers of the time, he's not saying that we became antichrists or um, opposed to Christ when we went out, He's saying that they never were of Christ, but they just made that known by going out from them, if that makes sense. So, this seems to indicate that the hearts of these people, these false teachers or antichrists, were never in the right place to begin with. So, they, they only became known as false teachers because they left the faith. And in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 7, um, Paul is actually warning of these false teachers. And we see many warnings throughout the scriptures of false teachers. Um, here, specifically in 1 Timothy, he says, In latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. And here he says that they will depart from the faith, like John has said right here in this epistle. And these false teachers that rise up from among the church, I would say are the most dangerous. Because it's easy to pick out when someone is diametrically opposed to you. When they say Christ never even came in the flesh, he and John talks about that. Um, Christ never lived. 
He was not a historical person, which it's interesting to look at historians and their account of Jesus. Because to any historian, there is no doubt that a man named Jesus Christ was born and lived in the time period which is specified in the Bible. That is one of the most well-established facts of history. And there's so many documents that, um, that prove that. And you can see it all throughout the Old Testament, but even viewing the Scripture as purely a historical document and not a divinely inspired document, it's still proof for the historicity of Jesus, of this figure. So, in the end times, uh, false teachers will rise up, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Again, in Acts 20, verses 29 through 30, Luke warns of this same idea, and he uses the analogy of sheep as the people of God and wolves as the false teachers. And so we have to guard ourselves whenever we are listening to anyone teach. And that goes for myself, and I know Justin would say the same exact thing. We want you to be Bereans. We want you, Acts 17, verse 11, the Bereans sought out in the Scripture what was being taught to them to see if it was true. And the Scripture says that they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they did that. So we want everyone to do that. Um, and we as Christians put our sole authority in the Scripture, not in a clergy member, uh, anyone in the church. They do not have the same authority level as the Scripture. So we have to go back to that as our baseline. So anybody that professes something that is not in accordance with the Scripture is a false teacher. Um, and truly, if, if Americans were more rooted in their word, then these false teachers would have a much harder time gathering a following. They would be met with quite a bit more of a challenge than they currently are. And it's sad, but it's true. So, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So, John is telling these, these churches in Asia Minor um, that they have an anointing or an unction from the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. And they know all things pertaining to, to spiritual issues. So, um, this anointing from the Holy Spirit is to help us discern. And again, John will talk about this uh, later in chapter 4. But um, here he's saying that the Holy One allows you to know all things pertaining to the Spirit. Okay, And uh, we are going to revisit this in a few verses. And there's a, another good good text for that. With this anointing or this unction from the Holy Spirit, uh, you do actually have a supernatural ability to discern between spirits. And um, it's, it's not really of our doing, but it's something that the Spirit lays upon us. And of course, He also works to convict us of wrongs, and we will 
we call that conscience. Sometimes, like, I have a bad conscience about something I've done. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, convicting you for that thing that is contrary to the Spirit of God. And He allows us to discern the Spirit behind something or someone. Verse 21, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know the truth. And that lie is of the truth. Um, So, the lie that John is talking about is this lie that is going to be perpetuated by the spirit of the Antichrist and the Antichrist himself. Um, It is the lie that he talks about in the next verse, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. That is the ultimate lie. Um, And that is the lie that determines the ultimate destiny of each one of us. If we buy into that lie, then we are eternally separated from God. But if we do not buy into that lie and we see the truth, which is in the Scripture, then we have eternal communion with God. So who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So this is the spirit of the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And I don't know, you may have heard somebody say, oh, I, I pray to God, but I, I don't really need Jesus. Um, I just pray to God, right? But that's, that can't be. And maybe they do pray to God, they're God, but he's not the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible necessitates that you make a sacrifice before coming to him, even throughout the Old Testament. And the Jews today are kind of stuck in in this idea that they go directly to God. And since they don't have the temple to make their sacrifices, they can't atone for their sins and cover them in that way. So they're kind of stuck. But it's unfortunate because there's already been made a way. And we, thankfully, know that way. That way is the perfect lamb that was Jesus Christ. Um, So that sacrifice has already been made. But even the God of the New Testament that was revealed to the Israelites in the way that he was, um, even then you needed something between you and God. You needed that animal sacrifice, which was just a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus. So without the Father, you don't have the Son. But if you deny the Father, then you also deny the Son. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So that last little uh, part of that verse, um, it's probably in italics in your Bible. Uh, That just means that it was kind of an addition to complete the thought. But I, I do think that the thought is complete in itself. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. So, verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. We see from the beginning again, And at the beginning of this epistle, John uses that term from the beginning uh, in reference to Jesus. And he does the same thing at the beginning of his gospel. 
this in the beginning, from the beginning, specifically in verse 24, refers to the beginning of these people's walk with Christ. So it would be referring to the first time that they heard the gospel. And that which abided in them when they first heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, John is imploring them to, to abide in that good news. What first brought you in, you remember in Galatians, uh, don't go over to the, the fleshly things when you have been made perfect by the Spirit. So that Spirit that made them perfect is what they are instructed to abide in. If, you, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. This is Jesus speaking. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So it's the same idea of abiding in Christ and he will abide in you. Uh, just like John says, if what you hear from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. And this idea of the promise of eternal life, the Gospel of John is full of this idea. Um, just real quick for you, John 3.15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then that idea is again echoed in the very next verse, John 3.16. And we all know that one. But another quick list for you, uh, John 3.36, John 6.40, 6.47, John 17.2, and John 17.3 are all connected to this idea of the promise of eternal life. And that is the promise that he has promised us through his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who tried to deceive you. He says, these things I have written to you. And that is directly in reference to what we've just gone through. Those verses 18 through 25. So he, he wrote verses 18 through 25 to provide instruction to these churches uh, in Asia Minor um, concerning the coming deceptions. 27, But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and it is true, and it is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. So again, John's getting a little wordy, but it can be summed up and we will try to tackle that. So he begins the sentence with but, and that is just to contrast between this, the ideas that he's presented before this. So he goes in saying, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. You do not need that anyone teach you. Uh, let's roll to 1 Corinthians 2.13. It says, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, so this is the idea that a carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. Uh, 
a carnal man would only have a couple of these aspects of his being really engaged. He's, he's not engaged with his spirit. And so it's only by the spirit that you know those things that are spiritual. Um, the carnal man does not know the things which are spiritual because he, it's, it's absent in him. He, he can't understand it. And this is the kind of teaching that the Holy Spirit is doing. It's, it's a spiritual kind of teaching. And, you know, I can stand up here and I can go on forever and everybody wants to go to lunch, but um, it's not really me that is teaching you. I'm relaying the message, but the Holy Spirit works to, to teach you to apply these things that are in His Word to your life. And I really don't see that as my job, but His job. So I'm thankful for that. Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's in Matthew 11:15. And of course, He's not speaking of the physical ears. He's speaking of the spiritual ears. So if you have those spiritual ears to hear, let him hear. So the Holy Spirit is teaching us these things and giving us this unction to discern between the spirits. And you do not need that anyone teach you because the Holy Spirit is doing that. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. I mentioned this a little bit in youth this morning, but the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And this goes back to that idea of a carnal man not understanding the things of the Spirit. And truly, this idea of a God coming down to save his people, as opposed to his people working and trying to get to the level of their God, that is a foolish message. That is echoed nowhere else in history. It is unique to the story of Jesus Christ. And so we can't learn the things of the Spirit, uh, including the redemptive work that has been done apart from the Spirit. Verse 28, And now, little children, again we see this tender John relating to these, what he calls little children, these younger Christians in Asia Minor, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So earlier we talked about um, the church believing that they were in the last days. Um, I, I believe that that was very purposeful on the part of God. So Think about it. If, if we're expecting an imminent return of Christ, we're going to behave a certain way. Okay, there's going to be a cer- certain sense of urgency within us to be prepared for that coming. And when I was reading this and studying through it, um, I thought of like a, a mom. When you're pregnant, uh, you're trying to get everything together in order to have this baby come into your life and so you have the baby shower you get everything ready paint the walls in the baby's room uh, make sure everything is nice and in order for that new kid and when everything is set out you're you're getting ready 
um, I believe it's called nesting mode. <laughs> you you go into nesting mode and you hunker down in your house and you kind of just wait. And there's that expectancy there. You're expecting for something to come. And you even have a a slight twinge to get to cleaning, I believe. And of course, I'm not a mother, so <laughs> this is uh, this is all uh, vicarious to me. But you get this urge to clean everything, so you just go around frantically cleaning, waiting for the baby, cleaning, <laughs> and so that expectancy literally changes how you act. So you act in such a way that prepares you for what is to come, what you're expecting. In me. This expectancy of Jesus' coming makes me want to tidy up some things in my life. And I would hope that it would, it would impact you in the same way, in a similar way. Um, these things that we do that maybe are not in line with the commands of God, that we want to scrub those down, clean them out of our lives, and be ready for Him to come. And that is so that we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. That actually makes a lot of sense because we know that God is the eternal one. He is the one who inhabiteth eternity. And he is righteous. And so therefore things that come out of him are necessarily righteous. Um, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So there can be no righteousness apart from him because he is the sole source of everything that is righteous. So as as we do close this morning, um, I hope that that expectancy of the Lord's coming is going to carry on with you this week. Um, And do let it change how you act. Let it change how you carry yourself day to day um, because we don't want to be ashamed when he does come. And it could be at any moment, truthfully. Um, And Jesus says that not even he knows as the Son, but only the Father. Um, So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do thank you so much for being here with us this morning and for speaking through your word. And God, we we ask that you would be with each one of these folks as they go out into the world and profess your name and your coming. God, we ask that you would be with them and um, direct their lives. Uh, Let them tidy up some things if, if it's needed and be expecting your coming. God, we thank you so much for the ultimate sacrifice that you've made for us through your Son. And even as we come through this Christmas season and come into the new year, we ask that you would continually remind us of that sacrifice. Don't let that leave our hearts as we pass through this season. Um, Please be with each and every one of us as we seek to make disciples and further your kingdom this week. It's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.